Welcome to episode 26 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichiboy. Chapter 26 Lifeline Letter Award. Judy, Sandra Penny, her former Camp Charge and now fast friend and fellow lifeliner, Sandra Lacey, and a couple of other members of the year-old Canadian TPN Patient Association, as they formally call themselves, arrive in Saratoga Springs, New York, on a lovely but hot July day in 1987. The American Ole Foundation has held annual picnics for four years and conferences for two, and the Canadians have attended a few of them. This year is a special one, for Judy is the first recipient of the award Oli has just set up, and the Foundation is paying for Judy's travel expenses as the monetary portion of the award. On the first night of the conference, the American hosts invite all the participants to dinner at the Wishing Well, a local restaurant. Don Young, one of the organizers and a lifeliner himself, had already spoken to the owner about the differing food requirements and had explained that he wasn't even sure how many people would turn up. Twenty gather around a table. Judy and Sandra sit across from each other. A waitress with white permed hair broaches a noisy group to take their orders one by one. She comes to Sandra and asks what she would like. Sandra looks across the table at Judy and asks her, Are you going to buy my dinner tonight? No, I'm not. I'm not buying your dinner tonight. That's it, Judy asserts. Sandra looks up at the waitress and says, No, I can't have anything. I don't have any money. Oh, all right. I'll buy you a cup of tea, Judy sighs. You can have that. Okay, I'll have that, Sandra says as she hands the menu to the appalled waitress. Sandra, I'll buy you dinner, one of the sweet Americans offers. No, no, that's all right. Here, take the menu and buy whatever it is you want. She's not eating, Judy announces. The group freezes, not knowing what to say, caught between Sandra's plight and Judy's implacability. Sandra and Judy crack up, throwing their heads back and howling with laughter. Like Judy and unlike most people on home TPN, Sandra cannot eat any food, for she too has no bowels left. Smiles break out and the waitress relaxes and moves on to the next customer. The dinner goes late into the night, the crowd moving from the table to gather around the piano to sing. Judy's voice soars above all others. On Saturday, the Canadians cannot wait for the picnic and head out early, arriving well before the 11 a.m. start time. The Americans have the same idea. They descend on the back lawn of St. Joseph Catholic Church at Greenfield Center. Judy does not remain incognito for long. So many know her voice from their phone calls to her seeking help and encouragement, or know her face from medical journals and newspaper articles, and they cannot wait to speak to her in person, touch her, feel her presence. As one lifeliner says to another, if Judy can be out here doing all these things, I've got to at least talk to her. Each has his or her turn to say hello, ask a question or three, and just listen. Judy ignores no one, and as everyone finishes their moments with her, they turn to their friends and exclaim, wow, this woman is so dynamic, she has so much energy. Don walks over to the tent, puts his hands up to his mouth and calls for everyone's attention. He eventually penetrates the excited din surrounding Judy, and he calls her to join him under the tent. 
the acolytes part to let Judy through. Dr. Lynn Howard and Clarence Oldenburg joined John and Judy, Clarence looking sharp in a straw hat and the two women looking cool in their summery dresses on this hot day. Howard moves to one side of Judy, Clarence to the other. Don steps away. Howard starts telling the story of Judy, while Clarence watches Judy with affection and Judy finds the fresh green grass a good view. The crowd barely rustles, not wanting to miss a detail. Howard stops speaking and picks up a framed certificate from the table nearby. Judy looks up. I'm proud to present to Judy Taylor the very first Lifeline Letter Award on behalf of the Oli Foundation. We have set up this award for an adult H-Pen consumer or caregiver who has been on therapy for at least five years and has demonstrated courage, perseverance, a positive attitude in dealing with illness, and exceptional generosity in helping others in their struggle with home PEN. We wish to thank David Holder, an early home care company executive, for making this award possible. Judy is the obvious and unanimous choice of us all. Judy accepts the certificate and looks at it as a crowd of 150 claps and whistles in approval. Thank you, Judy looks at her certificate again and then back up at the crowd. I love you for giving me this award. I'm very, very thrilled for this, but it's other people that have got me here, you know. My family had to sacrifice for me. Dr. Gigi Boy gave me back my life. Judy stops and blinks hard. She cannot continue. One by one, they clap into a thunder. When it's over and people have started to mingle again, the conference's unofficial official photographer asks the three to pose together. Click, click. Just one more, he asks. Click. Judy loosens, looks around, and disappears into her mob of groupies. Back at home, Judy relives that high many times as June becomes summer and summer cools into fall. On the night of Thursday, September 10, 1987, she turns over in bed and cracks a right rib. She inhales sharply. Her heart accelerates. Adrenaline races through her. Thoughts of how others sneeze and break a vertebrae flood her mind. DaCosta bandages her up and Jeej continues to work at finding a cure. But her bones no longer hide their insult. Ribs fracture, an arm breaks, and bandages and casts appear on her body over the waning years of the 1980s. Slowly, reluctantly, she realizes that although Jeej has found a cure for everything else, he will not be able to cure her bones or her G-tube. It's just a matter of time now. She and Cliff talk about how many years they think she has left. They think five. She has reached her goal of seeing her grandkids born. She has watched them start to grow up. She takes them to church every Sunday, and she revels in being Nana to Julie's three children. She tells Susan Clayton, her neighbor, during one of their frequent visits, You know, you've got to live through today. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, but just through today. You've got to get through today, or you're not going to see tomorrow. She breathes and deeply and exhales gratitude for her life. Susan, she says, stop and take time to look around. Enjoy your life to the fullest. Don't take anything for granted. Like, if a bird is going by, take a look at it. You know, it might be a rare bird that you haven't seen before. Take time to work in your garden and take the beauty out of the flowers. Judy loves roses and pauses as she envisions her favorite flower. You know, take a look at your trees and stuff like that. There are so many simple things in life people take for granted, and it's all part of life. But most people are just in the fast lane and go, 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 and they miss. They miss 90% of their life. You live your life to the fullest.
Judy talks to her about death as well, especially since Susan is dealing with much sickness and the death of her grandmother. Well, you're not really dying. You're just going to a better place. If we're suffering here, the afterlife is going to be much better. You have to look at it that way. The glow of goodness that always radiates from Judy and her matter-of-fact words bring peace to Susan. Although Judy feels content with what Jeej has given her, she's determined to enjoy every moment left to her. For Judy, Oli conferences are must-attend events. She plans her annual trips down to the last detail. Judy writes on cream notepaper with a bunch of fall flowers decorating the bottom left. May 18th, 88. Hi, Jeej. This is just a note to ask if you will send me another letter clearing my solutions, etc., for crossing the border. Eight of us are off to the Oli conference, and as they are getting pretty sticky about drugs at the U.S. border, I'd rather not have to use last year's letter. Thanks for the trouble, Judy Taylor. She makes Sandra LaPenny her permanent roommate, and although Sandra's husband would like to attend, Sandra and her husband both know that these four or five days every year at the Oli conference are special to Judy. Judy and Sandra go everywhere together when they're in Saratoga Springs, except for the one night Sandra decides to go to an Irish bar and Judy reneges on the plans, being too tired. Before she leaves, Sandra asks which of the two books Judy brought will be on her reading agenda that night, her smutty reading or the Bible. Judy grins. It's Harlequin tonight. Sandra returns at an early hour and falls into bed after hooking up her own TPN. Bang, bang, bang! Get out of here! Get out of here now! The fire alarm shrills through the hotel. Judy leaps out of bed, yelling at Sandra, Get up! Get up! There's a fire! Judy hurries out, nightgown flapping, pushing Lester, her hair sticking up, down, and sideways. Sandra is close behind, but can't stop thinking about losing her possessions and runs back for her favorite Blue Jays sweatshirt. She exits last out of the hotel door and into the parking lot and stops. Her jaw drops. Laughter bubbles out uncontrollably. What is so funny? Judy demands. Judy, if you could just see yourself. Your hair is sticking straight up. You've got only your nightgown on and you're tied to Lester. She doubles over laughing. Judy smiles, but is distracted by hearing the fire door open. Firefighters straggle out and halt bemused when they see the parking lot party of patients with their forest of poles and pumps and their nightclothes riffling in the breeze at one o'clock in the morning. The only one all dressed and made up with earrings on is Marlene. You can go back in now, the captain tells them. It's safe. The firefighters try not to stare while the group files past them with poles on wheels, lights flashing on the pumps, and tubes disappearing down their tops. Judy loves every silly and learning moment of the Oli conferences, even when she is part of the learning moment for others, as is the case on Friday, June 23, 1989, when she is the first speaker at the conference. With a few presentations now under her belt, Judy is more excited about traveling with her friends than nervous about the speech itself. She has tasked Sandra LaPenny to be her slide projector operator, and Sandra obediently has practiced until perfect. Judy will not put up with flubs, she knows. Good morning, everyone. Just want to warn you that any strange noises from up here are my knees knocking. It's the next morning. Judy has just stepped up to the microphone. The packed room erupts in laughter, and she relaxes. Having been asked to speak on where we were in TPN, I'll try to tell you of my beginnings, as well as what some other programs were doing in the early 70s. 
First, the technical aspects. While in hospital, dressings were easy. A trip down the hall to the utility room to pick up a sterilized dressing tray, back to my room, and so to work. Upon going home, things were very different. We had to sterilize our own trays. She checks the screen to see if Sandra has the first slide up. She does. This involved putting a large... She flips to the next handwritten page of her speech. Roasting pan filled with water, a metal dressing tray, forceps, etc. on the stove and boiling it all for 15 minutes. She glances towards Sandra as Sandra prepares to click the slide projector button for the next slide. When cooled, the necessary supplies, gauze, tape, iodine, alcohol, etc. were added and we did our dressing. In those days, next slide, Sandra, a daily gauze dressing was done, not like today when we use disposable trays and op sites. With respect to my feeding, see the next slide. We have always had our amino acid, dextrose, and plastic bags, as opposed to bottles. Initially, I had three separate bags, but now I have a single bag containing three liters. I only had to add vitamins on my own medications. This, I realized, was different from some other centers where patients received bottles of solutions that they had to mix together along with all the additives. Lipids were a part of my daily diet in hospital from the beginning in 1970, as you can see from the next slide. This was infused by gravity over four hours. I understand that this, too, is different from here in the U.S., where lipids were not available until the late 70s. By mid-1970, we were delivering our two or three liters of amino acid dextrose solutions through a pneumatic infusion device. Sandra changes the slide. It consisted of a compressed air cylinder attached to a red regulator, which controlled the air being released into three pressure bags containing the bags of solution. The bags of solution were connected in series. The air pressure ensured a constant flow and the drip rate was controlled by a roller clamp. All this paraphernalia hung from an IV pole. When my pole was presented to me, meaning I could at last go home, it came already christened with the name Lester and eyes and a smiling mouth painted on the pressure bags. Laughter interrupts her. She waits until it dies down and continues. This infusion ran for 12 to 14 hours overnight. At this point in time, overnight infusions were not common. Many patients received their solutions 24 hours a day. For this reason, various ambulatory devices were invented. For example, you can see on the next slide that Scandinavia used a backpack system which took either bags or bottles. She pauses as her written speech instructs and inhales deeply. She looks at Sandra, who switches to the next slide, and continues. In France, solutions, including lipid, were placed in sausage-shaped bags, which were worn like collars around the neck with a small pump at the waist. I was lucky because Dr. Gigiboy, realizing the psychological impact of being restricted by such an apparatus, decided that we could be disconnected in order to lead a more active life. She gestures to the screen. Therefore, heparin was infused into the catheter. At this time, it meant taping a 10cc syringe with or without forceps to your chest, really added to your body image and sex appeal. The crowd howls and she waits until she can be heard again. Now, as you can see from the slides, we have a nice little blue cap to plug in as well as extension tubes to secure the catheter wherever you see fit. That's one of the reasons for brassiers. Do bad, fellas. In hospital, in the beginning, on 24-hour infusion, no one could explain why I felt so miserable by mid-afternoon. Upon closer scrutiny and with much giggling and guffawing, the medical diagnosis was handed down. I was hungover. It seems that one of the components of my solutions was alcohol. Hence, I was getting drunk. 
Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, this problem was remedied. The next first in the scientific evolution of TPN was the discovery that I was diabetic. Further investigation proved that this was not entirely true. Yes, my blood sugars were elevated, and I had peripheral neuropathy, but the cause was not an insulin deficiency, but rather a lack of chromium. Once this was added to my solutions, my symptoms disappeared. With all this chromium in me, they promised to polish me up for Christmas. Since then, research has been done into the need for other trace metals, such as copper, selenium, zinc, etc., which we all now receive. Finally, and perhaps most important, has been the change in our lifestyle. Some of this is due to technology, but much is due to a change in attitude and acceptance, not only among patients, but also among healthcare professionals, that one can lead a normal and active life on home TPN. For example, when first discharged from hospital, we moved 100 miles away into the country, where I was to live the quiet life as a semi-invalid. Dr. Jijiboy arranged with the emergency services to have helicopter pickup if any problems arose. Thank heaven this never was necessary, because I'm afraid of heights and terrified of the thought of riding in a helicopter. As for a quiet life, it simply wasn't possible with three kids, seven, nine, and eleven, at home, and glad to have mom back after a ten-month absence. In addition, the cat was having kittens and the kitchen cupboards were being constructed in the dining room. In time, I learned to drive, was teaching sewing and cooking to about 14 teenagers in the 4-H club, looking after two horses, bowling, and occasionally having a ride on the neighbor's minibike. I was even lucky enough to have a trip to Sweden, where I spent a great but grueling 10 days touring Stockholm with some friendly locals. The original purpose of this trip was to be on a panel at an international medical conference, but it was more fun being a tourist than a specimen. Other patients go camping, swimming, moose hunting into the backwoods of northern Ontario, or even touring Europe. I hope I've given you a bit of insight into the beginnings of TPN and a few of the differences. Just remember that things keep improving as research continues, and that living with Lester or your pump or whatever is a whole lot better than the alternative. If you have faith and a sense of humor, you are more than halfway there. Thank you. Applause thunders through the room. Judy stays at the microphone, soaking it in, her smile broadening and cheeks reddening as the crowd stands up en masse, clapping enthusiastically. She floats to sleep that night. She cannot wait until next year and ensures nothing gets in the way of her going. George has moved to Nova Farm as Director of Hospital Services, and she decides to approach him for some funding to help them make the trip. Judy writes in her looping large hand. May 26. 1990. Mr. George Chalice, Nova Farm, Lifomed, Pharmaceutical Company, 7181 Woodbine Avenue, Unit 110, Markham, Ontario. Dear George, as you know, some of us who are HPEN, Home Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, patients try to attend the Oli Foundation Conference in Saratoga Springs every summer. We have always found this conference very informative as the speakers are well-versed in their topics and of course the opportunity to exchange ideas and do some problem solving amongst ourselves is always a learning experience. Although this will be the first year that at least one of the Toronto contingent is not either a speaker, discussion leader, or award winner, we will participate in every possible area and report back to the rest of our group at the fall meeting. Last year your company was kind enough to assist us with the expenses involved in this endeavor, and we were very grateful. 
I am writing to you now to ask if you would again be interested in providing financial assistance. We are going to drive as it cuts the cost of plane fare. Any help you might give would be most welcome. Thank you again for your support last year and hope you will find it possible to do so this year. The conference is the weekend of the 13th and 14th of July. Yours truly, Judy Taylor. She adds her phone number to the end of her letter. George comes through with a check for $100 and asks her to let him know earlier next time, before all their funding commitments have been made for the year. Neither he nor she has an inkling that this 1990 trip is her last one. You have been listening to Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Jijiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.